being seated, grab your Bibles. If you're a second through fifth grader, at this time we're going to ask you to go to the back and you'll be able to go downstairs for your time. Uh, special to you. Hope everybody's doing okay this morning. You know, when we began uh, our church, it, it started in my living room with just a small handful of people, but we got too big for our living room, and so we were praying for a place to meet. We met in a restaurant on Sunday nights for, for a number of months, and it just so happens that uh, Joe and BJ Massa are here today, and Joe and BJ own Massa's Seafood, which is down by Discover Green, and so I just want to say welcome to you all. It's a real privilege to have you here. Not only uh, were they very gracious to us in the early days, uh, but they also are a part of Sagemont, which is our sending church, and uh, which means that they support us in a mighty way. So thank you all for being here. We'll try to be on our best behavior so you can take back a good report. Um, you know, uh, today, I'm excited about today. To be co- honest, I, I don't anymore stand before you as I, if I've studied and prepared to preach God's Word. I, I stand here always knowing that it's a sacred thing to do, but I typically am not nervous, but I feel a little nervous today because... Because this is so important, what we're about to talk about. As we've looked at the life of Jesus and we've retraced the steps of Jesus, we've retraced our own understanding of who Jesus is and how we got to where we are in our understanding or belief about who Jesus is, this journey has been remarkable. We're in this series, and today we get to this place where we find that Jesus is consumed with concern for the lost. Throughout his ministry, his work was moving forward. He was always mindful of the people who had not yet heard his message. We see it all throughout the Gospels, specifically related to the stories about Jesus, and we see it throughout the entire Scripture. God's heart for people who are not yet reconciled to him in a right relationship with him. This is a beautiful thing in Scripture. What I want you to understand today is like Christ, we must go to the lost. And then we'll see today that we also get to rejoice when we see God work. Now, right from the beginning, if you're hearing me say that, hey, and JJ led us to pray about it, that there are people outside of the church that will get to hear the gospel from your lips through your invitation, you're scared. It, it can be very scary to you because you feel intimidated. And we've stumbled upon some, some pics where these people are scared. You know, Wednesday, as you know, is uh, Reformation Day. That's right. In uh, October 31st, uh, in the 16, early 16th century, Martin Luther um, declared uh, some truths about what he saw as injustices in the church, what sparked the Protestant Reformation. That's Wednesday. That's why we celebrate. Some of you will be celebrating Halloween. Our family will be celebrating Protestant Reformation. We get dressed up and go in the neighborhood, and it just so happens there are other people out there too. Anyway, so, um, so uh, we, we've, we, we found these pics. For these, we're talking about being scared, right? So there's this Halloween. Hold it there just for a second. So there's some, this, this um, haunted house. And clearly, <laughs> I wonder if she knew him. <laughs> so there's this one spot where the people are being scared and they, they, <laughs> they photograph it. So I think we <laughs> I've not really looked at these. I've heard about them. But anyway, here we go. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
fuck yes. <laughs> oh goodness. So maybe that's what you. Are there any more? I don't think so. Uh, maybe that's what you feel like. <laughs> maybe that's what you feel like whenever we talk about sharing your faith. And many of you are very new in your faith. There are, this is we're finding. God is, is working through us to introduce people that have not yet received Christ to Christ. So many of you are new to your faith, and so you think, oh, man, I don't know much. And you're already going to say that, that I ought to be considering those that are lost. Um, yes, you should. So here we are in Luke chapter 15. Turn your Bibles there if you haven't already. Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have a, a one for you. Just slip up your hand, and we'll get one to you. Um, Luke chapter 15, and I'll even tell you what page it's on. It's on page 874 in the Bible. Uh, here's, we need one up here. Um, Luke chapter 15 is, is the first of three parables. Now, what a parable is, is it's a little like a cryptic story that Jesus tells to make a point. And what we know about the parables is that sometimes Jesus tells them purposefully, uh, ostracizing those people that might not understand them. So there are some people Jesus knows will understand his story and others that will not. So he tells a little bit of an illustration here, and it's called the parable of the lost sheep. We're just going to look at the very first one. So Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, sets the stage for the beginning of these three parables. And here's what it says. Now the tax collectors, just stop. The tax collectors were hated. They were cheaters. They taxed on behalf of the Roman government, and not only did they tax on behalf of the Roman government, they, they tripled, sometimes quadrupled the taxation on people because there was no one governing them. The Roman government did not care how harsh the tax collectors were on the Jewish people. All the Roman government cared about was that they got their portion of that harshness. So the tax collectors, a hated, unethical, dishonest group of people, and sinners. Sinners are those people that are far from God. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus. Why? We ought to ask that question right from the beginning. Why in the world would they be drawing near to Jesus? Jesus is proclaiming, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, there is a way that you can be reconciled to God or restored in your relationship to God through repentance and faith. This is the message of Jesus. Yet these tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to Jesus and that message. The reason that they were drawing near to him, no doubt, is because they recognized that their own lives were on a course that did not satisfy them. They recognized at some level they were lost. They needed help. Now, we don't call people outside the church lost all the time because it sounds offensive. And maybe some of you do not have faith yet in Jesus Christ. And for me to tell you that you're lost, you might say, no, come on, I'm not lost. But what it does teach us about this group of people, those people that are outside of faith in Jesus Christ, is that they're aimless. Their life is purposeless. They're not sure where they're going. And if they are certain where they're going, where that, whenever they get there, they will realize that it did not satisfy in a way that they thought it could. Maybe the tax collector thought if he just accumulated enough money, 
that's where he was going. And yet they would get here and have a lot of money, and they felt lost. So these tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus because they recognized that Jesus offered something they could not provide for themselves. Verse 2, and the Pharisees, the Pharisees are, uh, it, it's a, one of the religious groups. The Pharisees are confronted quite often by Jesus for being religious externally. They put so much emphasis on looking religious, yet their hearts were dead. So the Pharisees gave Jesus a lot of trouble, and here they're going to give him trouble again. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. They question Jesus and his relationship to these sinners. And we see here that Luke points out their real problem is that Jesus is eating with them. Now, what we must understand is that in this culture, especially if you ate with somebody, you were in essence affirming their lifestyle. You know, today you could go eat with somebody that you don't know particularly well, maybe a coworker or somebody you've just met. But in this day, to sit down and to break bread with somebody was really, really significant. It was a sign of fellowship, of connectedness. Oftentimes the meals took quite a while in this day. So to sit down with somebody, you would be there for a while and you'd be sharing each other's lives and influencing each other. Well, here the Pharisees and the scribes had this kind of religion where they would not associate with sinners because not only might the sinners influence them, they would be counted as religiously unclean because these sinners' lifestyles counted them as unclean. Well, Jesus was doing something scandalous. He was communicating God's love not only to the sick person, to the blind person, but also to the lost person. And he engaged them. He met those people where they are. In Luke chapter 5, there's another instance. Don't turn there. I'll read it to you. There's another instance where the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling against Jesus. And it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And here's what Jesus says. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What we see in the passage already is that Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus welcomes anyone, even if they're someone whose sin separates them from God. This is a beautiful truth. Something that's magnificent in the scriptures. He welcomes sinners. Maybe you do too. One thing I love about this church is that I believe that any person that walks in these doors will be welcomed. No matter their lifestyle, no matter the story. Any person. Maybe you welcome people that are far from God into your lives. Maybe you welcome them into your home. Maybe you're friends with them and you take time from them. That's wonderful. But the truth about this story in Jesus and what's oftentimes missed is that Jesus didn't just wait for the sinners to come to him. Jesus went to find them. These people would not have known about Jesus had he just hung out at the church with all his disciples. 
But instead, Jesus was always on the move. He was always going. He was always looking. He was always searching, always finding the people who had not yet experienced the love of God. Always. And then when they met him, he welcomed them. He sat down with them, and he ate with them. Well, the religious people didn't like that. You know, there are several reasons that people outside the church don't want to come near Christians. I mean, we ought to just admit that. Several reasons that people outside the church don't want to come near us like they came near Jesus. One of them is that people outside the church, for some of them that don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, they know someone who claims to follow Jesus. Makes sense, right? Have you ever known anybody that claimed to follow Jesus but was just a terrible representation of him? I find that to be true in this culture, in this part of the world where the name of Jesus is proclaimed and is talked about regularly. There are people who claim Christ but yet are real jerks. There are people who claim Christ but yet their lifestyle is as ungodly as anybody else's. There are people who claim Christ but are driven by pride and arrogance and selfishness. So certainly people outside the church, some of them don't want to have anything to do with Jesus, not because they don't have never heard of Jesus, but it's because they have seen somebody that claims to follow Jesus and they don't like him. Why in the world would they want to be like them? I find it helpful when I'm sharing Christ with people who have met somebody that's Christian and and had a bad experience with them, just to apologize and just say, you know what, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that in our movement, there are people who are really terrible representations of him. Not everybody's like that. And actually, when somebody's a terrible representation of Christ, the person who claims Christ, it just argues for the need of a Messiah, right? Another reason that people outside the church don't want to come near Christians is because they feel lost. They feel like they're not good enough to come in God's presence. We don't talk enough about how in the Bible Jesus welcomed people who were far from God. And then he used people who were really far from God. Paul, who wrote a large part of the New Testament, called himself the chief of sinners. I really, I don't don't know if this is totally true, because in in God's sort of spiritual economy, no matter if you've sinned a lot or sinned a little, you're separated from him by your sin and it's all the same. But I really believe that there's something special about the person who's really, 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 really ungodly and does all kinds of crazy, immoral things. It's like when God rescues that person, there's just something extra special about it. But very many of those people who are outside the church, they feel, they feel lost. They don't understand God's grace. They don't hear that Jesus spent most of his time with sinners. So... There's another reason several people that do not take interest in the church, they either know somebody that is a Christian and they're a poor representation, or maybe they feel lost, they feel dirty, unclean. They don't, hear, they don't understand that God loves them and can rescue them and restore them and deliver them. But another reason is that they don't feel lost. There are many people all around us that feel quite okay with their morality. So Jesus is irrelevant. You know why we need a Savior? Because we recognize our sin and our imperfection. 
there are people that don't feel lost. And so Jesus is irrelevant. Well, no matter the case, here's the truth we see from the Scripture. We must go to them. We must go to them. If you've grown up in the church, you've been discipled with this kind of an idea, this kind of culture. Come and see. This is what, you know, come and see my preacher. Or you wait for the preacher to go get him. We have this mindset of come and see, but instead what we must live with is uh, a passion to go and tell. A passion to go and tell. Remember, Jesus went to them before they were drawn to him. So here he is. He's about to tell him this parable, these religious uh, people. Uh, certainly there were some of his followers there, and there were religious people all, all around him. He's about to tell this parable because he wants to prove a point to them. And here's, in essence, what he's saying. If something is important to you, in other words, if you see value in it, if you feel close to it, if you care for it like you should, and if it became lost, you would do whatever you can to go find it. So if something's important to you and you lose it, you'll do whatever you can to find it. Pick up in verse 3. So Jesus told them this parable. What man of you... Having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them. Just keep in mind this culture. This would have made complete sense to every one of them. I don't know anybody in here that has a sheep, much less a hundred. But just put yourself in this scenario. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, having sheep during this day not only communicated a relationship, a responsibility, but it was also wealth. To have a hundred sheep was quite significant. So temporarily, the situation is that a shepherd will leave the 99 because that one is really, really valuable. No doubt, if the shepherd had left, he would have asked somebody to keep an eye on the 99, but his priority is going to be for the one that is lost. The value of that one that is lost is, at that moment, more significant than the 99 that are found. He deprives the 99 just for a bit. He prioritizes for the one in his schedule with his energy and with his passion, makes it a big deal. Can he care for the 99 and go find the one equally? No. So he has to make a choice. Which is more important? To tend to the 99 or to go to the one? Well, he makes a decision. He goes for the one. Why? Because that one is incredibly valuable to him. Verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. He bears the burden of carrying this one sheep who's evidently lost. He inconveniences himself, uses every ounce of energy he has, uses every bit of strength that he can muster to shoulder the lostness of this sheep. And in his return, he does not return begrudgingly. He does not return 
hating that one because he had to leave the 99 for it. But instead, he recognizes the value of the one and celebrates with everyone. Verse 6, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, if you had 100 sheep and you lost one and you went to find and you came home, and you called me, and you said, I found my sheep, I would probably say, I do not care. Because I don't value your sheep. I mean, I don't really, I mean, you had 99, what's one? No big deal. Why in the world would he call his friends? Well, the reason that he would call his friends is because his friends valued the lost one also. So they recognized that this Return was an occasion for joy. So there was celebration, not just in the one that went to find the one lost sheep and return it, but this, this group of people rejoiced because there was one that was lost, now it is found. He calls upon his friends to rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Verse 7, just so I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now, let's, let's understand this phrase. One person who is walking their own way, not God's way, but their own way, and maybe on their own way, they're idolizing sexual sin, or they're idolizing drugs, or they're idolizing uh, the worship uh, money, or they're idolizing whatever it is. Everybody worships something, everybody. Um, so they're walking their own way. They recognize that the master is calling them and returns for the, to the way of the master. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How important is it to Jesus that we consider the lostness around you? It's incredibly so important that when one person returns, it's an occasion for a party. Are the 99 insignificant? No. But they're not as important as the one. Is tending to your everyday life, just the things that it requires to get by each day, is, is that irrelevant? No, that's very important, but it's not as important as the one. When I worked at Sagemont down on the southeast side of Houston, a few times a year we would get notice that a group called Texas Equisearch was going to be using the building. This group called Texas Equisearch was founded by Tim Miller in the year 2000 out of a passion to help people that are lost. His own daughter was abducted and murdered. So what this group does is they gather in a location near the area where a person has been reported lost. They get a map of the area. They come up with a plan. And when someone is lost, 
every possible resource is used to find them. Every possible resource. They use radar and sonar and scuba diving if necessary. They use dog teams. They use all-terrain vehicles. They use uh, boats and aircrafts and remotely operated vehicles. There's lots of money that goes into it and a lot of time that goes into it. And most of the people that are searching are volunteers. Why are they helping? Well, because their hearts are gripped by the lostness. Most of the volunteers do not know who they're searching after. But they're gripped by the lostness around them. And what this group recognizes is that every minute that passes will increase the likelihood that the missing person is suffering and one minute closer to death. This begs the question as we think about the parable. When will the lost be important enough for us to go to them? Well, when we feel the Father's heart for them. God forbid one of the children in our church go missing. I think it's likely that we would all pitch in to find them, especially if we were to hear the Father ask for help. If one of my children were to go missing, I would call on you, church, help me go find them because I love them. And you don't really know them, but I love them and I'm asking you to help me. So what we must ask is, does the Father love lost people? He does. For God so loved His world that He gave His only begotten Son to die for us. He sent His Son to be slayed as an evidence of His love. Does God care about lostness? When will the lostness become important enough for us to quit spending so much time on the 99 other things in our life? And I know, I know, I know what you're saying. You're saying to me, Russell, the 99 are so important and I don't have any time left over. And I get it. I understand it. I live it. But let me tell you something. What you must remember is that there is still the one. Lostness around us will become important enough for us to go when we remember and feel deeply where we'd be had we not been found. If we're mindful, it's so easy to forget, right? God, I'm thank you so much. I'm so grateful I come to church every once in a while. It's so easy to forget how significant it is that God in His sovereign power reached down into our lives and took our little wicked hearts and turned them towards Jesus. That is so easy to forget. But when we remember what God has done in our lives, when we consider what if you were the one that the echo search was looking for. What if you were lost in the woods? Just two years ago, I took my daughter 
camping. And she was led by a couple of other older girls into the woods. And their act was evil because their aim was to leave her out there because they knew it would scare her. I was probably 200 yards away, maybe not quite 200 yards away, but I was across another tree line and I hear the screams of my daughter. I hear her screaming and she's yelling, Daddy, Daddy. So what did I do? Just a minute, baby. I'm cooking hot dogs. Oh, sweetie, I'm so tired. It's been such a long day. What did I do? I immediately stopped, and I made finding her the highest priority. Fortunately, not only did I, but a few others that were with me at the time. By God's grace, I was able to find her at the edge of the tree line. Had she gone the other direction, she might have never been found. When we remember what it's like to be the person lost in the woods, and we consider the lostness of others, we say this, if I were them, I'd want somebody to come find me. And some of you have people in your lives that don't even realize they're lost, and so they're going to reject your efforts to help them be found. And that requires patience and that requires prayer. But if you would remember what it was like for you to be lost or to consider where would you would be had you never been found, I think you'll be compelled to go. You say, well, okay, Russell, I hear you. What do I do? Well, really practically, what you need to do is you need to pray. First and foremost, for your own heart. And those little excuses that are creeping up in you, like you don't know how busy I am, or you don't know how much this and how much that, you pray that God would crush those. You pray that your heart would feel the Father's heart for the lost children. You pray that you would be mindful of where you'd be had you not been found, where your marriage would be, where your destiny would be. You pray. And you say, God, crucify my flesh and my excuses and the influence of the church culture all around me where people go to church all the time and don't care one bit about lostness. All they care about is whether or not they got good children's ministries, a good preacher, and the music isn't too loud. Crush that enemy, God. God, I, I make excuses. I've allowed my own life to become so busy, I don't have any energy to be mindful of those that are outside. So help me. That's a lifelong prayer too, by the way. And then the next thing you do after you pray, and as you're praying, is, is you go meet people. And right now in your life, 99% of you have lost people around you. Not only do you meet them in a way that you can call 
their name to mind as you're praying for them, but you engage them. You have a meal with them. Like Jesus hung out with these sinners. You engage them. You invite them into your life. You take the time to have them over to your home. You initiate coffee meetings. You share in what they're interested in. You engage them. Make it a priority. Jeannie and I have gotten away from this in the last few months because of our own busy lives. But what we've done in the early life of the church was we had a time on our calendar every single week where it said, eat with unchurched people every Friday night. Some people were in this church as a result of that. We'll get back to that. Engage people. Make it a top priority. As you think about your kids and what activities they're involved in, let them be in activities. But be thoughtful about who on that team or in that group God would want you to minister to. And when you find the Christians in that group right away, be thankful but move on. Because your relational plate is already filled with a lot of Christian activity. Engage the lostness around you. For some of you, you're going to be able to go into really dark places and frequent those places to engage lostness. That may mean for some of you going into one of our local pubs. Now, if you have an issue with drinking, I would not suggest you do that. You should go to the public library. Unless you have an issue with reading, then don't go there. Engage the lostness. And I'm not telling you to do something in addition to what you're already doing. Actually, what I'm doing is telling you to be mindful of the people in your life that are already in your life. Engage them. No one person in here is going to see hundreds of people come to Christ in the next few weeks. But every one of us can be mindful of the lostness around us and engage people. My challenge is for you that in the next 10 weeks, you would engage at least four lost people. You would invite them into your life. You would invite them to faith conversations and that you would invite them to our church. Now you say to me, Russell, I'm already doing this and I know many of you are because this is very important to our church. And I would say to you, be encouraged. God still cares about lostness. This isn't a program of our church or strategy of our church. This is the mission of the church. This is what it means to be a part of this church. No matter how big we get, how many campuses we have, how many churches we're able to plant, how much money we give away to do ministry, no matter how much, this will be forever in the heartbeat of our church. Why? Because it's in the heartbeat of Jesus. And if we're following Jesus, we're going to follow this. One of the most powerful passages of Scripture in all the Bible is when Paul tells the Galatians with respect to the gospel, Galatians 5, chapter 5, verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And when you think about the lostness around you, I want you to understand that these people are lost. They think they're free, but they're really bound. 
And through Christ, there is freedom. And we celebrate this as a church.